0: Hello, this is Dean Hess, Managing Editor of Respiratory Care. We are pleased that this month's podcast is sponsored by Pima Medical Institute. From entry-level professionals looking to develop respiratory therapy skill sets to experienced leaders ready to advance into senior positions, Pima Medical has the flexible degree options to fit your career pathway. Develop the leadership skills needed for growth and advancement in your respiratory therapy career. Learn more at pmi.edu. Now let's hear from the Editor-in-Chief with this month's podcast. Hello, and welcome to the March 2021 Editor's Commentary on Respiratory Care podcast. Thanks for joining us. This is Rich Branson, the Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. This month's Editor's Choice paper describes the use of high-flow nasal cannula outside the ICU. Jackson and colleagues report implementation of high-flow nasal cannula on the wards as a method to reduce costs and still assure safety. Of 346 subjects, 238 avoided ICU admission. Few progressed to need non-invasive ventilation or invasive ventilation, 6 and 5% of patients. They concluded that extensive education, careful subject selection were critical, To the successful use of HFNC for hypoxemia. Berlin provides a commentary highlighting the importance of innovation by respiratory therapists to improve patient outcomes and reduce costs. Junkman and colleagues evaluated a pneumatic automatic resuscitator in a bench study and a porcine model of hypoxemia. They report stable and predictable function on the bench and capability of supporting gas exchange in the model compared to conventional ventilators. Changes in compliance were predicted by changes in respiratory frequency. The author suggests that this could be used to alert caregivers of patient status. This has been true of all pressure cycle devices since back to the Bird Mark VII uh, days. They also rightly note that the device requires an attendant, an automatic resuscitator by FDA approval requires that a person always be in attendance. Branson and Rodriguez provides an accompanying editorial reviewing automatic resuscitators, their performance, and the importance of ventilators in the current pandemic. Minimum performance monitoring and alarms are required to be a solution for mass respiratory failure. In this case, quality of the ventilator trumps quantity, size, and economy. I think I agree with the author's conclusion that in the very short term, perhaps transport or initial presentation, these devices could be used, but the lack of monitoring alarms would require an attendant by the bedside continuously, not a luxury we have in a case with too many patients and not enough caregivers. Sancho and others describe a two-year prospective crossover study of mechanical insufflation exsufflation with and without oscillations in patients with ALS. In a small study of 19 subjects, there were no differences in episodes of respiratory infections, hospital admission, or need for bronchoscopy with the patients getting or not getting oscillations. They randomized patients to get oscillations only during the inspiratory phase, only during the expiratory phase, or both. They concluded that the oscillations during MIE and ALS did not provide any benefit. Swingwood, Shaw, and Rose provide commentary suggesting that while the study is well done, it's limited by the sample size and this might cause it to miss any actual effect. These studies are notoriously difficult to do with ALS patients in the home and and recording data, so we look forward to further work. They detail the importance of non-MIE-based secretion management following, including hydration, Mucolytics, aerosol therapy, and mouth care, which should be accounted for in future trials. Modi and others performed an evaluation of the pulse oximetry function of smartphones. They measured SPO2 with an oximeter and two smartphones in a group of patients presenting for a pulmonary function study. SPO2 mean differences were similar. However, both smartphone devices were unable to detect an SPO2 signal in about a third of subjects. They concluded that smartphone oximeters were comparatively unreliable. This is an important part of an equipment evaluation. When those devices record an SpO2 value, they tended to be accurate, but often they didn't record a value at all. Ali et al. evaluated the responses to PEEP on end expiratory lung volume and compliance as related to stress and strain in pediatric subjects with ARDS and at risk for ARDS. They evaluated almost 900 measurements in 32 subjects exposed to an incremental PEEP trial over 72 hours. Compliance and in end expiratory lung volume were lower, and stress and strain were higher in ARDS versus non ARDS. Rofe and others performed a retrospective cohort study in children with ARDS to determine the impact of driving pressure on morbidity and mortality. They reviewed records of 380 subjects, 101 of which were eligible for analysis. Using logistic regression, they determined that driving pressure, less than 15 centimeters of water pressure, was associated with a decrease in morbidity, but not mortality. Steindor and co-workers retrospectively reviewed NIV use in pediatric neuromuscular disease subjects. In a group of 128 neuromuscular disease subjects less than 17 years of age, quartiles of age were used to compare ventilator settings and vital capacity. A set backup rate was more commonly used in younger subjects, But airway pressures were similar across all ages. They suggested that this data might help allow a guide for initial NIV settings, which would be followed by titration. Harper et al evaluated the closed loop control system for high flow nasal cannula in a group of adults with chronic respiratory disease. They compared SpO2 time at target and desaturations during a six minute walk test and during recovery from the test. Closed loop control maintained SpO2 in the target range, 54% of the six-minute walk test, and 76% of the time of the recovery period. The proportion of time spent in the target range during rest was significantly greater compared to a fixed oxygen delivery of 28% via air entrainment mask. They concluded that the closed loop system was able to respond to exercise-induced hypoxemia. Gonzalez-Belido et al. evaluated the safety of high-frequency chest wall oscillation in hospitalized infants with bronchiolitis. Subjects were randomized to airway clearance consisting of prolonged exhalation and stimulated cough or chest wall oscillation. They compared SpO2, sputum weight, and the number of adverse events. In 92 subjects, there were no differences in SpO2 or adverse events between groups. This becomes a consistent issue for us in respiratory care. We often compare one therapy that may not be helpful to a new, more expensive therapy and find that it's equivalent to a therapy that really doesn't benefit. Um, We need control groups in these studies. Panu and others evaluated the use of an electronic medical record system to notify respiratory therapists of excess oxygen exposure in mechanically ventilated patients. They compared respiratory therapist-driven FiO2 titration to physician orders. Hyperoxemia was defined as FiO2 greater than 50% with an SpO2 greater than 95% for more than half an hour. In 195 subjects, alert accuracy was 78% and respiratory therapists responded in t- to 64% of the alerts. In this study, exposure to hy- hyperoxemia was significantly reduced. Actanadal compared pulmonary function testing, the severity of dyspnea, severity of fatigue, physical activity level, and health-related quality of life based on the severity of small airways dysfunction in men with moderate COPD. They defined two groups based on maximal mid-expiratory flow rate below and above the average MMEF. They concluded that increased small airways dysfunction led to greater dyspnea, greater fatigue and poor exercise capacity as well as health-related quality of life. Urbanowski and Pisblowski evaluated subjects undergoing methcholine challenge measuring airway resistance using body plethysmography a forced oscillation technique, an interreptic technique, as well as measuring FEV1. Subjects with asthma-like symptoms were recruited. There were differences in airway resistance measurements with different measurement techniques. They concluded that changes in airway resistance during methacholine challenge are detectable by FEV1 in non-responders with methacholine-induced asthma-like symptoms. Atulian et al. compared different methods of hand position on the mask and ventilation during ventilation in a model. They recruited 75 respiratory therapists who used two methods of holding the mask. The one used a hand to create a C-shaped grip on the mask and the other placed both hands in the same position with thumbs moving down on the left and right side of the mask holding to the face. They used a ventilator to control the tidal volume delivered at, and reduced that as a variable. There was a minor effect of hand position on, on successful volume delivery, only a difference of about 6%, but the participants preferred the two-handed, C-shaped grip for their own comfort. Spolatini and colleagues performed a retrospective analysis of, of non-invasive ventilation use in cystic fibrosis subjects in the United Kingdom over a 10-year period. NIV was initiated on 64 occasions, most commonly for hypercapnia. Subjects who discontinued NIV early had a progressive decline in FEV1, while those continuing with NIV showed a slower decline. No differences in the use of IV antibiotic or exacerbations were noted. They concluded that non-invasive ventilation stabilizes lung function in these patients, but does not alter rehospitalization or infection rates. Hudman and co-workers evaluated an interprofessional tobacco cessation train-the-trainer program for respiratory therapy faculty. They conducted five two-and-a-half-hour web-based train-the-trainer programs and surveyed participants at baseline, post-training, and at the end of the academic year. They included 270 faculty who were nearly all reported improvements in their ability to teach smoking cessation. They concluded that the program had a positive impact on faculty's perceived confidence and the ability to teach smoking cessation to their students. Demchuk and Chatburn evaluated 16 different positive end expiratory devices and oscillatory PEP devices in a bench study using simulated expiratory flows from 5 to 30 liters per minute in 5 liter per minute increments. They measured pressure and flow waveforms and generated flow amplitude, flow frequency, oscillation index, and resistance measures. They concluded that PEP devices behave similarly, while oscillatory PEP devices demonstrated potentially clinically important differences in the oscillatory index. This oscillatory index may be important for the movement of mucus forward, um, the sole source reason for that therapy. Savorski et al. evaluated the stability of whole blood lactate measurements from samples stored at room temperature or on ice. Arturo and Venus samples from 200 subjects had blood lactate concentration measured over five time points in the lab. Samples were stored at room temperature or under slushed ice conditions before analysis. The difference in lactate measures suggested ice conditions were unnecessary. Wang and others contributed a narrative review of music therapy in adults with COPD. They reported a reduction in dyspnea and anxiety in COPD subjects participating in music therapy. Calais and colleagues provide a narrative review of lung recruitment and de-recruitment in ARDS and propose when and how to perform recruitment maneuvers and in which populations we should use this technique. Um, Rich has a really good view of this, has spent a lot of time studying ARDS um, and is at that point where he can provide us not only knowledge, but wisdom. Appreciate your attention to the Restoratory Care Podcast and look forward to speaking with you in the future. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.